It's a new generation. We got dedication. We are parenting for liberation. Welcome, everyone. You're listening to KUCR here on 88.3 FM. Also streaming online at KUCR.org. This is Daniel with the Deer Report. Today we'll revisit a conversation with Trina Green-Brown, founder of Parenting for Liberation. We were able to share a conversation approximately two years ago on our respective approaches toward parenting. Today we'll pick up that conversation again. Before we begin, Trina, can you introduce yourself, please? Hi, my name is Trina Green-Brown. I'm the proud founder of Parenting for Liberation. Um, I also describe myself as a black feminist mama activist who is raising two children in partnership with the village of folks um, who are hoping that our children are free, whole, and liberated. Um, So that's how I describe myself. Trina, we had an opportunity to talk almost two years ago, and I reached out to you because uh, I've been following your, your your podcast, your your segment of really kind of bringing to light a, a larger conversation, um, which is how do we take care of our children as parents, adults, community members that are committed to, it sounds clumsy to say it, but the politics of living in a world that requires us to resist, to stand up for ourselves. Um, that is a great question. Yeah, we talked about Two years ago, you're right, and um, my conversation with you was one of the first conversations that I had with someone really explaining or trying to wrestle with what did I mean by Parenting for Liberation, and it was really um, at an early stage um, of the birth of Parenting for Liberation, and I conceived this idea because I realized I was parenting from a place of fear, and that fear was rooted in all of my knowing as a social justice parent. Um, someone who had been doing work in social movements from youth organizing to gender-based violence to state violence to school push-out, like all of those different issues that I was dealing with on the work front were being brought into my home life in a way that wasn't healthy. Um, And so I really wanted to commit to shifting the way that those narratives and those and my knowledge of those different types of violences and experiences that you know, black folks are experiencing how that's not to impact negatively the way that I was parenting my children. And so what I've been learning over the course of the last couple of years, I've been having conversations with lots of different parents. Some are recorded and have become podcast episodes. Um, Other conversations have been in person at conferences and gatherings and convenings. And what I'm learning is that as black parents, we And this probably is for other parents as well, but particularly for black parents, we are up to a lot. Um, We have a lot to face on the external front and also on the internal front in terms of like external outside of our homes. And also we have a lot of unlearning to do from our own ways that we were parented um, that were rooted in maladaptive behaviors that are informed by um, what I'm learning to be called post-traumatic slave syndrome. and and so really it's about looking at the trauma that our people have experienced and how that trauma has impacted the way that we've shown up in the world and how we've parented and 
how do we unlearn that trauma and create new practices that are around healing and around wholeness um, as we integrate our own healing as parents into our parenting practices. We were able to have this this conversation around two years ago, and I remember actually that phrase that really resonated with me when you said that you took it, you took a moment to check inventory of what you were doing, and you saw that there was a parenting approach that really stemmed out of fear, and you took it upon yourself to really counter that and say, "I will, I will not parent out of fear." When you shared that with me at the time, it really resonated with me because I hadn't thought about that way of phrasing it, even though I recognized that that was really what I was doing for a huge chunk of of parenting of, th- of that early stage. And at that time, I also had to check how much am I doing that is not out of fear, but out of this commitment to protect, but it can be done differently. And a lot of it has to do with trying to think about just what we carry. At the time I shared that I was lucky enough to have an ongoing conversation with a circle of men. We were actually putting on on radio. Uh, we were sharing it uh, with others. But it was a little bit awkward because I hadn't really thought that there was a way of talking about it where we needed to kind of check not just talking, but like figuring out what tools we're bringing forward. And this inventory of stress, trauma, we didn't want to give it to our children. But a lot of it we were doing unconsciously because in the urgency to protect, it was manifesting itself in this fearful way. I really appreciated the way that you kind of were, were able to address this by, by using those words that you didn't want to do it out of fear and I remember we were talking about the ways that that we see things differently as adults than, than our children. And we want to be able to give them the type of sight that we have acquired. But then one of the things that just recently um, I was talking to a friend of mine, I was saying that I I have this concern that when I am trying to give that sight to my daughter, I don't want to scare her one but I also don't want to overburden her with information because I want her to to see things for the first time also. So how have you been able to kind of find that balance of figuring out that there's this thing that we want to give them, but they also have to acquire some skill sets on their own? I've been learning that in relationship with other parents about acknowledging the brilliance of our children and not to assume that they don't have a sense of knowing of their own. And also at the same time, acknowledging that our, the way that we as adults and particularly like folks who've been in this type of work doing different types of anti-violence or social justice work, that we, at times we have a jaded sense of what's possible. And oftentimes when I'm thinking about what's possible and how could we build the future where children are whole and liberated, actually the people who have those solutions and examples are young people, our children, our youth, because they're not as jaded by all of the information and all of the data and all of the statistics that we have. And they're not necessarily committed or as entrenched in the current worldview or the current experiences that we have, that they still can imagine that there's something different. Um, and so, and so for example, 
I was talking to my, my son about, um, about gender. I just assumed that he would hold a gender binary very strongly because our world is so gendered, right? Like pink is girls and blue is boys and like all the gender reveal parties, like all of these multiple things are happening in this world that he's been in for nine years. And so I assumed that he would be like heavily steeped in the gender binary and wouldn't be able to see that gender is a social construct, right? And I was like doing this in a way that's rooted in my own fear. Here it goes again. So we were going to be at a gathering where there would be folks who were participating in the gathering who would be gender non-binary, transgender, um, gender queer, and I wanted to ensure that he engaged with those folks in a way that honored the gender expression that they represented and not to make assumptions. And so I was like, oh, let me make sure that my baby understands this. Um, and I was, again, I think I was coming from it, as I reflect on it, I was coming at it from a place of fear that he wouldn't get it right or that he would mess up or that he would harm someone. And again, he's just a kid, right? So I think folks would have more grace with him and understanding that he's developing. But when I got into the conversation with him, he was like way more open and willing to see the broadness and fluidity of gender and was just asking lots of questions. And so I asked him lots of questions. He asked me lots of questions and he was like, yeah, I get it. He's like, people can be whatever gender they want to be. You ask people if they want to be he, her, like, what do you call them? No, like, and then we went into the space and it was fine. And then he asked me, mom, how did I do? I was like, I think you did fine. But that's just like an example that just recently happened where I was carrying all this worry and fear about how he would show up and the impact he would have or the impact it would have on him as well. And just engaging in a conversation with him about what does he think? Like, what do you think about gender? Like, do you think that there are certain things that girls can do that boys can do. And do you think there are these real limits? Do you really think there are these boxes? Or do you really think that girls and boys can do anything? And do you think there's beyond girl and boy? Um, and that there are folks who could be um, more fluid, right? And so it, it required me to step out of my fear and to come into the conversation from a place of not, I know that all the answers and let me teach you, but from a place of let's explore this together. What do you think? And I think when you begin any conversations with young people about, like, what is their own perspective on things? What do they think? What are their values? What are their beliefs? That you enter from a place of, like, they have information of their own, and I also have information, and how do we bring that information together to create a more holistic awareness that doesn't burden them with everything that I think? I think overall we've learned to see children in a very disrespectful way because we don't give them credit that they that they have the answers and that has a lot to do with something you addressed earlier which is like really unlearning what's been provided for us but then there's also this balance of giving ourselves credit just how easy and accessible it is to get to the place you want to be eventually so that if you want to have a respectful relationship with your son or daughter a lot of us struggle, like, how do I make that happen? It's not that hard. I mean, it's hard to to get that expression to work the way you want it to be, but you just have to try. And, and as I heard you kind of uh, give us these details of that experience, it was a lot easier to get to the place of it being manifest. You just had to trust that, you know, you have that talk a lot of parents, I think, are, are struggling with that sense of just being scared all the time that 
it's not going to go the way you want it to go. Talk about relationships, sexuality. These are things that I catch myself tensing up. You know, I, I go like, oh, is this the right way of saying it? And lately I've been more comfortable with the, the, the fact that it, it's okay to be clumsy. It's okay to, to realize that it's not going to be always perfect. But the ease of just letting go, I think, is what I've found, I guess, safety in just knowing that you just have to do it. You just have to try. And then trusting, I like how you um, word it, the, the, the brilliance of our children, just acknowledge that they are capable, they are strong, and it's by default. And I think that's what it is. Like, as children, they are born that way, and we just have to acknowledge it. What she said makes me think about um, a couple of episodes on the podcast that I wanted to point out. One, you should totally listen to um, an interview I had with Ignacio um, Rivera called Let's Talk About Sex. And also it was Ignacio and their daughter, Amanda or Mandy. And and it was called Let's Talk About Sex. And so they are folks who um, talk about sex with children, have talked about sex with their daughter growing up over time and really like engaged with me about how to have those conversations with my children um, and really gave me some tips and tools. So I would check that episode out on the podcast. And then the other episode that comes to mind, um, that's not necessarily related to talking about sex specifically, but that, that reminds me that these are not one-time standalone conversations. And so that was a conversation I had with Professor Tiffany Lanois. Um, and that podcast is about talking about colonialism and other isms. And so in that podcast, she talks about talking to her son, who's the same age as my son, um, nine years old. And she says, like, these conversations about these big things like racism and sexism and um, colonialism and all of these things. She's like, these aren't just like one time conversations and like they have to continuously happen and they have to. Um, not be like, okay, son, let's sit down and talk about colonialism, that they have to happen naturally. Um, and natural meaning like the opportunity arises based on what's happening in the world or what's on television or, you know, what cartoon are they watching? Like, are there any female characters who are the lead? You know, just like really like what is the, what is the race of all the people in the show? Um, does it so happen that the darkest character is the is the villain? And like, what does that mean about racism and anti-blackness? Right. And so like there's ways to have those conversations that are on their level and not like let's sit down and let's lecture about this thing. So those are a couple of the podcast um, conversations that have really been helpful for me and that I would recommend listening to because we do have to have these conversations with our young folks. Um, and you're right, we can't tense up because how we engage with the conversation shapes how they think about the topic. So if if we're talking about sex and we're all timid and squirmy and, oh, my God, we're talking about sex, this is so uncomfortable, then they're going to think that talking to you about sex is uncomfortable, right? And so then they're not going to want to come to you when they're actually ready to have sex or are already having sex because they're like, oh, this conversation makes parent uncomfortable, so I'm not going to bring it up to them. And so, yeah, so how we engage around the conversations has to be more open. And if you are uncomfortable, like, being honest about it, like, this conversation makes me really uncomfortable, but I want to have it with you, um, that honesty and openness will re-invite them to come back and re-engage about the conversation over and over and over and not have it be that you as the parent have to have all the information for that one conversation about sex because it shouldn't just be one.
I recall a conversation with a group of people that, that I feel safe, you know, talking about being a father and reflecting on the parenting that was offered to me. And one of the the person in the group said, you know, we're talking about dads and he tells me like, I don't think our dad spoke like this. Later on, you know, we kind of left it off because it was kind of this moment of realizing, are we overthinking it? And later I said, well, I hope they did. And if they didn't, I feel really uncomfortable. And I used the word sad. I said, like, I feel sad that they didn't because it's hard. It's very lonely, you know, to be always worried and not have, you know, someone to tell like, hey, I'm scared that I'm not doing a good job or I'm scared that I'm not supporting this person enough or I'm scared that this person's going to be hurt. And I think that is something that as a parent, there's very few universals, but I want to say that's probably one of the few universals out there that around the world, that's a concern for parents. And if they are not able to have this way of expressing it, it's hurtful. You know, it's a very lonely experience. And one of the the things that I really take away from where I feel a lot of us are is that we feel supported. We feel that we are accessing these great people that bounce back ideas, are able to validate, question, check us sometimes when, when, when we say things that don't sound appropriate. But at least we know we're not alone. To return to your conversation about being able to talk to people, how do we talk about that, that circle of, of being able to express these things with others? Yeah, I mean, that feeling of being alone and isolated or feeling like you're the only parent that's going through this or you're the only parent who might be getting it wrong. Like those feelings are what catapulted me to create Parenting for Liberation. Um, it originally started as an idea that I wanted to shift the way I wanted to parent. And then I said, well, I don't actually know how to do that. That's what I thought. I don't know how to do that. And then I was like, well, who are the folks in my community, in my circle, in my movement work who I admire, the way that their children engage with the world, and I admire the way that they parent? And I was like, I want to talk to those folks. And so it became interviews with folks. Well, it didn't. It, it was conversations with folks, and then I started to record them because I felt like, well, maybe I'm not the only one who feels this way or feels like I need this information. Um, and I started to share it as a podcast. And... Folks have been really receptive to the podcast, um, have been really receptive to the blog. I've had over like 4,000 downloads of the of the podcast. I gathered the podcast stories um, early on in the like in the, within the first year of doing the podcast. I gathered the stories and created a workbook. Um, I, I self-published the workbook and sold 100 copies already. And the workbook are just the stories from the audio podcast in written form. And then in the workbook, there are questions that you can engage in. It's kind of like a journal, a reflection space for folks to think about the different learnings and lessons from those parent stories about how do they make changes and how do they make shifts and what they were wrestling with. And then also I've been able to bring parents together. So I did one gathering in Los Angeles and in that, gathering there actually is a video on the website from it's called it's a black friday gathering we gathered on black friday and in that time of being together that's the one thing that parents said is like needing the space to engage with other parents to one realize that they're not alone to two heal from whatever trauma or experiences that were holding them back and requiring them to parent from fear 
like how to push through that together, and then how to share tools and stories with one another. It's really sharing stories, and from those stories, there are nuggets and gems about things that we can try with our own children. And so that experience has been really impactful. We've gotten great reviews and feedback about when we bring parents together, um, that it begins the healing and also helps us to identify that we are not alone and we're in this together. And then we have partners who can support us, even if they're not in our house. Because in our house, we feel like, Literally, I'm the parent in this home, and I'm doing this either alone or in partnership with someone. But being able to step back into a community and get support is really important. So that is why I want to build up parent of liberation communities of practice nationwide. And so I'm looking at building a hub um, in different cities where folks are the leaders in their community. So there's another podcast that I can link um, guide folks to. It's, it's with Dr. Kim Parker. She's based in Boston. And she held a gathering. She just kind of called for a space on Facebook. She was like, I'm hosting this gathering for folks who want to engage and bring their children to talk about this issue. She reached out to me. I gave her all the tools that I use for my gathering. And that podcast is called, If You Build It, They Will Come. And so just an opportunity for folks to see that they can build these communities together and call other parents. And folks will show up because there's a yearning and a desire to be in community with other parents who are thinking about this. When I hear you speak, I kind of think about how people kind of coming into this conversation for the first time may may think about parenting. I feel there's something very accessible about the desire to be informed, to be empowered, to get more tools around parenting. But I also feel that there's a conversation that we've been kind of hinting and I think you were more direct than I in, in verbally acknowledging and this idea of acknowledging just the power of the children themselves to support us. Uh, a lot of times it feels it's one-sided and I remember you know at the very beginning uh, when I held my daughter and and she was minutes you know being born even then I remember knowing that this was going to be a relationship of, of giving and taking because I felt that I was, in order for me to be able to offer strength and health, beauty, I was going to receive that from my daughter. And it's never stopped. But I also acknowledge this moment of, well, these actually very long moments when I don't give myself credit or give her credit that she is instructing me, she is teaching me, she's transforming me. And as parents, I don't think we do that enough. I don't think we have a moment of realizing that the weight isn't fully on us. We do carry the lead, obviously, as adults, but the, the idea of the relationship of, of healing as also coming and stemming from our children or toward us as well. Yeah, I think what I'm hearing you say is that it's a mutual relationship with you and your child, and I agree. Like, I totally agree with that. I think that I'm trying to build mutual relationship with my children. I think the piece that feels like a lot of weight on parents is even that practice of building mutuality is not something that we learned growing up. And so we have the potential to slip back into habits that are dominant, authoritative, and then we have to like go back somewhere and unlearn that. And and that can be done in relationships with our children, but I also think that that's the importance of having other parents or other partners who can support our own healing, meaning the parent's healing. I'm thinking about this out loud right now with you for the first time, but I don't think I want to place 
the burden of my healing on my children. And that's my healing around my own trauma, my healing around how I was parented and raised and how I want to unlearn some of those habits, my healing that is rooted in deep trauma from ancestral trauma that's rooted in chattel slavery, that I don't necessarily want to put that taxing burden on my children to carry for me or with me, but I want to arrive and be in a relationship with my children from a place of wholeness, uh, a place of authenticity, and a place of vulnerability that I can share that that's what I'm doing. I can share that I'm, I'm still a work in progress. I can share that with them, but not bring them into the healing process for me. And so I think that that's the distinction I would make about the mutuality. Being in a relationship with them, with my child and with my children, has actually challenged my old habits and ways of being. And I'm like, oh, wow, I can't do that anymore. And so then I got to go do that work. But that was the offering from my child is to challenge and push up against some stereotypical ways of parenting or um, ways of parenting that are rooted in trauma that I wanted to unlearn. And so it is an offering from, from being in a relationship with my child to witness that I'm actually not parenting the way I want to parent. And then it's my work to go shift my own parenting practices. When I think about parenting, I struggle with the ways that it feels unequal in the ways that we manifest dominance and control, which is part of the responsibility. Obviously, uh, as a parent, when they are five, there's a lot of uh, control over their physical body, you know, where they can move, how they can move. But you want to start releasing, relieving, you know, stepping back from that so that when they are 15, 18, you know, they're strong and they don't have to feel that they uh, haven't exercised that level of control throughout. But one of the things that I think a lot of struggle with is this sense of taking inventory to how we express the type of control that may not be in line to the type of liberation we want. I think of the the things that were said to me and that I might have said that in retrospect, I realized that really wasn't that important. Uh, in Spanish, there's a, there's a formal uh, usted, you know, that they used to for adults. And there's the tu, which you use informally uh, among your peers. And she never used it to me. So she uses the tu, which is the informal. And, um, and that's how we speak. And you can't catch it in English because you'll say, like, do you want a cup of coffee? You know, like that. And you can't catch the formal informal. But in Spanish, you would say, uh, quiere instead of quieres. And to the point, someone checked me on it like, oh, why does she do that? Why does she use the informal? And I was like, I never really thought about it until that person uh, checks with me. And then she did it with another adult. And then the person tells me, like, hey, that's very rude. And I checked that person by saying, like, why did, Why is it rude? It's like, well, because she's a child. She shouldn't be talking to the adult so casually. I was like, she's offering you, uh, you know, if you want something to eat. But the person was trying to talk about this idea of, like, formality. And, the, and then I end the conversation by saying, like, I just, I'm not committed to that. Like, to me, that's a form of power. And I don't see any reason why we should use it. But I... I realized that I had never even thought of articulating that. I just it just never happened because I never thought that was that big of an issue. But as I as I'm talking to you about this conversation of taking inventory of the things that have been 
offered to us and we manifest and then knowing that there's like a balance because the person kind of says well you know that may work with you but it's not going to work with someone who doesn't know that she's not doing it out of disrespect and I still didn't follow because I was like, I really don't care that much. Like, if that person has a problem, I'm going to make sure that my daughter knows that some adults are going to think that she's rude. But you, it's up to you to decide if you want to grant them that level of, it's just a linguistic marker. But I, I realized that for me, it wasn't that big of a deal because I was like, I don't want to use that. I don't want to use that level of marking. You're a child, so you have to use this formal speech term in order to mark your status. But yeah, at the same time, I'm balancing this question of asking, oh, but is she going to be not injured fully, but like checked by someone else who isn't me? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good conversation to have with her and explain to her the two options and then see which one she prefers. Um, and if she could articulate, you know, like you have a, a kind of like theory or way to, uh, to explain why you use the two and like, does she know about the different distinctions and does she have a preference? And, you know, could she articulate if someone said, excuse me, like you're being rude or disrespectful, could she articulate, oh, I'm sorry, but this is why I'm making a choice? Like, could she articulate that um, on her own behalf? Um, if someone called her out for being disrespectful, do, would she feel like it was being disrespectful? You know, so those are the kinds of conversations you could have with her, actually. And I think it would be an interesting one in terms of, like, respect. It's this conversation that I have with my son, about elders in our community, um, I've gotten similar, like, not things around the language piece, because the only language that we know is English, although I'm sure that's not our native tongue as folks from the African diaspora. But there are ways that culturally in the African-American community, things have been passed on from generation to generation around respectability and around what does it mean to respect adults and elders that I don't necessarily feel aligned with either. And a lot of it is rooted in our beliefs of what will keep our children safe, if that makes sense. And so this idea that, you know, if you are a respectable young black person, certain things won't happen to you, right? It's the reason why every time a black person is murdered, we go, well, what were they doing? What were they wearing? And, and there's this way that they're criminalized even if they're the victims of violence, you know, at the hands of state violence, the black victim is criminalized and asked, you know, well, why were they wearing a hoodie and why were they out of school? You know, like their character is just kind of just interrogated. And all of that is from a place of respectability, because if they were a respectable Negro, for example, back in the day, then that would help you to not be victimized by law enforcement. That was the narrative. But that's not really true. Because even the most respectful folks who present a particular type of blackness are still victimized by police and are still still experiencing state violence and racism and prejudice and discrimination. And so I think for me, those are the reasons why I feel like none of that stuff will keep my child safe. Although that is what I believed. That's what I was raised believing. That if you don't wear your pants sagging, if you don't play loud hip-hop music, if you don't do all these things, if you go to school, you get an education, you work really hard, you keep your head down, those things will keep you safe from racism. But it's not true. It's really not true. And I think me realizing and coming to realization that that won't actually protect my child. And instead of having him grow up believing that if he puts his head down, if he does all these right things and checks all these right boxes, he'll be safe. I can't continue to instill that message in him because it's not true. So instead, I'd rather just cultivate in him now. Well, this is what liberation looks like. 
This is what Black Boy Joy feels like. This is what I want you to strive for. These are some of the obstacles you may be up against, but through all those obstacles, I still want you to have a strong sense of self, pride, hope, power, and be able to shift the way that folks are engaging with you versus you shifting to fit into the box of American white society. And I think there's also this generational divide that I've noticed. I was really lucky to see both my grandmothers were able to hold my uh, my daughter. They offered information that at that time was their reality. A lot of it I got to kind of appreciate and, and carry forward, but a lot of it I couldn't because times had changed. So it, there was this balance of, of looking at the generational kind of gap of just how the world has moved in a place that though their messages were very much coming out of this place of goodness and even empowerment, it didn't carry. And I think there's something about this idea of how every generation has to try and find their own skill sets. And as parents, I I now think of myself as this idea of saying, like, I'm trying to keep up, but a lot of it is going to be about letting go as well, knowing that my reality isn't going to be her reality. The things that I struggled with in my early teens, um, some of it I can give her. I, we talk a lot about my experience in, in, in junior high, high school, places that she's about to enter. She's go, she's in middle school now, and and a lot of it I'm realizing, you know, it's nothing like it, you know. Um, my middle school and high school experience didn't have the same things that she's going to live through. So I'm realizing that a lot of it has to be, I have to come to terms with that generational gap. Yeah, that's very true. So my stepdaughter is in, um, is graduating middle school and is going into high school. Um, and we were literally just having this conversation yesterday, driving and um, realize that, you know, our generations are different, right? She's going into high school. She has a cell phone, obviously, because, you know, every young person does, except for my son, who's really upset about it. But I'm like, dude, you're nine. You don't need a cell phone. Like, you know, generationally, it's different. Like, growing up, I didn't, for example, I didn't have a cell phone. And if I did, it was like one of those phones where you play the snake game, and that was kind of all I had. But the way that young people are always connected to one another um, for example, is something that I didn't experience um, in school. And so I mean, we were just talking about the ways that young people nowadays build relationships, some of them inauthentic, some of them not as deep as they can be because they're always connected, that they're always connected to folks socially, but then have no, but then lack some true, like, deep relationships. And so we're just having that conversation um, with each other. And this is not me trying to generalize for the whole generation but just in our own experience, in our own conversation, like she was reflecting on that, and like how to actually do, build deep, true, authentic relationships with a couple of peers. Like, who do you talk to when you're struggling with things? Which of your friends can you tell what's going on at home? You know, like, who are these folks other than like on social media? You know, if you scroll up and down any young person's social media account, it's all the joyful things. It's all the times that things are going great. It's it's the smiles that they put on, even if, like, at the same time they were, like, really sad, but on social media they post this smile. And so it's like, who who do they reveal their truest self to? It's like, that was the conversation I was having with my young stepdaughter. And um, it was in that moment that I realized 
that I can't tell her how to be in relationship to people because it's a different way of being in relationship. But I can ask her those questions about, like, how does she build deep relationships and who can she go to for these particular things? And the other thing that I did with her as a result of that conversation was, like, realizing that there's some ways that she withholds, you know, how she's really feeling and what's up for her. And so we went to this herbal store because I was going there for different herbs and, and essential oils and, like, kind of really just got her to, like, explore, like, where her needs are. And then one thing that we did, we practiced together. So I'm a part of various kind of like trainings and workshops, and I do different physical embodiment. I do forward stance. I do Tai Chi. And I also do a Keto Joe through the Generative Somatics program. And I actually joed with my with my stepdaughter. Um, and that's like a – it's informed by a martial arts tradition, a Keto Joe. And in that practice, in this particular frame, it's really about us welding our power and being connected to ourselves and realize that that would help her so tremendously. Um, she was like super grateful after and she's just like, oh my goodness, this is really helpful for me to connect to myself. And that just reinforced that conversation that we had in the car about being super connected to everyone all the time through our cell phones and our gadgets that we disconnect from ourselves. And so being able to bring this practice that I learned in social justice movements into my home made me realize that we can practice liberation in our homes. All the stuff that I'm fighting for in my work, I can bring it home and integrate it into our lifestyle, that now this is a practice that she can go to when she feels disconnected. Um, And so that's just, for me, an example of there is a generational divide and what are the ways that we can integrate um, what's happening with our young people, with with what we have to offer them without forcing it upon them. Where do you envision um, your work? What directions really kind of inspire you right now? (laughs) I get really excited when I see um, Black Girl Magic and Black Boy Joy, which is when I see young people, young Black folks, children, and families just living life and being whole and being carefree. And so I get, like, lit and excited and animated about folks who are living liberation, even in this, like, messed up world of the Republican era of Trump. Like, just to still see folks, like, living their best lives is a way that I get animated. Um, And for my work, I really want to figure out the ways to help other folks who aren't experiencing that yet cultivate that. And so all of these interviews on podcasts, really like me kind of doing some research about like, what are the real strategies? What are the real tips and tools and lessons about how to practice parenting for liberation? Um, And I hope to take that learning and build with other parents who are really like invested in this strategy and this approach to build a networked way of being parents and connected so that we can support each other and create communities of practice. Right. So I live in Southern California. Like I would love to get a group of parents who would meet up like once a month, for example, who are like, yes, I'm raising these black children and I struggle with X, Y, and Z. And I want to come together with other parents. I also want us to be able to like be in relationship with our children. So like going on adventures together, going to museums together, having these conversations with our children, just really want to build that out um, locally and also nationwide. I want other folks to do it. There's lots of folks who are interested, who I've interviewed, who are down. And so really figuring out a way to bring all those parents together and families together. I have visions of so many things. I have visions of a family camp, like like next summer, I want to like bring black families together to go camping 
and like have all of these conversations over a like three day weekend um, and like bring in some cultural traditions that we may be disconnected from like in rituals. Actually something that's supposed to be coming up soon is in, in Southern California, like the Los Angeles area, there was a black family conference that's happened five years in a row. And the person who put it on stepped down and said they wanted someone else to take it on. And so I volunteered to help spearhead the sixth annual black family conference. And so just really trying to figure out how to make that happen without many resources, but wanting to make that a consistent thing for black families in Los Angeles County. So hopefully that is going to happen and you could find out more about that on my website. But yeah, these are just some of the things like wanting to harness the power of parents who are parenting from liberation and then create tools for folks who are interested in this parenting approach. Trina, I want to thank you very much for sharing this conversation with us today. Thank you. And for folks who are interested in learning more, you can visit the website, www.parentingforliberation.org. We also are on SoundCloud, Parenting for Liberation. We're on iTunes, Parenting for Liberation, and other social media platforms. I really appreciate folks checking us out. And if you have any questions or want to email me or have ideas or you're interested in like being a part of that black parent group in Southern California, you can email me parentingforliberation at gmail.com. You've just finishing a conversation with Trina Green Brown, founder of Parenting for Liberation. We shared our thoughts regarding the different approaches toward parenting, perspectives that address the availability of beauty, strength, health, power, in the relations we form, develop, strengthen, produce with our children. In this conversation, I'm encouraged by the way that we can kind of trust that we have all the tools necessary to support strong individuals. Our communities are strong. They hold a wealth of resources. Every one of us has so much power, beauty, strength, and our commitment to support one another creates a context in which our children can be safe, be strong, be beautiful, be intelligent. I take away a lot of encouragement from this conversation, knowing that we are not alone. There are many of us. And as we acknowledge one another, we know that the work has already commenced. So let's just support one another. Let that beauty and strength come forward. Please feel free to send me your thoughts, questions, anything you want to offer to the following email address. Comments at dreport.org. Also feel free to visit our archive page at dreport.org. You've been listening to Daniel with the D-Report. I want to thank you for tuning in. You're listening to KUCR here on 88.3 FM. Stay strong, stay safe, and join us again next week.